Write that, write that down for me, Slater. Write that down for me, Slater. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Write That Down. I am one of your hosts, Justin Nipper. I edit over at FightGameMedia.com. I'm a staff writer for F4WOnline.com, WrestlingObserver.com, and I'm back with Fumi Saito, Japan's leading pro wrestling writer, author, historian, pro wrestling historian, pro wrestling anthropologist, pro wrestling sociologist, broadcast journalist, everything. We're back. Today, we talked about Mr. Riki Joshu. It's, this was long overdue, for sure. We kicked off our series on the one and only, very special, very unique Mr. Riki Choshu, one of Japan's biggest names ever, even still to this day, in different ways, not just for being a wrestler, but just for being what Fumi calls a, quote, kind of punch-drunk boxer past his prime. We'll get more into that, and especially in the second episode, but today we talked about his rookie years and growing up as a, a Japanese of Korean descent, which is a particular social issue, cultural issue in Japan. Uh, we talk about that early on. Um, we talked about his success in high school and college as a wrestler, as a freestyle Greco-Roman national champion in Japan. Uh, he went to Senshu University. It's really important, really big school for wrestling, amateur wrestling in Japan. We talked about when he debuted professionally against El Greco. First match, he won with the Scorpion Deathlock. Um, we talked about his excursions. Joshi went to Germany. He went to Montreal. We hear a great story from Fumi about the uh, time Joshi waited in line for kiss tickets. Be ready for that one. Uh, also, a very interesting story about uh, Carl Gotch and Ricky Choshu and Choshu's time in Florida and why Choshu didn't train with Gotch. It's a very interesting story. Um, we talked about Yoshiaki Fujiwara's famous attack on Choshu, 1982. Choshu going in Mexico, UWA, defeating Kanek. Uh, later on, we had the, the Choshu had his own version of the pipe bomb interview on Fujinami. Uh, if you're not familiar, Towards the about an hour into the show, we talk about the famous Fujinami feud, the series of matches in 81 82, Joshua Fujinami, the history of the Riki Lariat, and later him resigning with his Ishingun dudes from New Japan, and we saw the beginning of Japan pro wrestling. Oh, lots to talk about today. All right, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed. It's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Downcast, wherever you usually listen to your podcast. Please do it. It helps us out a ton. All right, also, I have a book out on Amazon right now, Stronger Than All. It is a digital match guide to all the New Japan Strong matches for the first two years of the show. All right, that's it. Let's get started. One of my favorites, one of my personal favorites. Ricky Choshu. So it's kind of like almost long overdue. Yeah, we've done the uh, jumbo through the, uh, the the whole career, the 
episodes, you know, the, the bio almost. We talked about, you know, Inoki, we talked on you know, Old Japan, uh, New Japan, I'm sorry, Jan Baba and Old Japan history. And we did the Tenru episode. And then the last time we did the Japanese and Japanese, um, Japanese American wrestler in North, North American soil. And uh, yeah, we did Tenru, of course. And by talking about junior heavyweight division in Japan, we were talking about Fujinami's legacy, you know, as a, as a result. And it's a long overdue that uh, Ricky Choshi is one of the most influential wrestling figure in the last 40 years almost, right? It's- yeah, he, he really is one of the ones we have to put side by side with all of the other names that we've done shows about previously, like Inoki and Baba Hansen. Uh, Jumbo Brody Brody he's he's right there and he was one of those uh, few people to kind of walk on both sides during his career he went to both right New Japan Japan. old Japan back to New Japan and even left New Japan for the second time and and formed a group called the world Japan double J then after double J collapsed you know after a year he started working places like hustle <laughs> and right. at Dragon Gate, at uh, Real Japan, and back to just teeny bit old Japan, and uh, Legend Pro Wrestling, then back to uh, New Japan again. And then uh, he retired twice. We're, we're going to cover that. And uh, not just those little paths, but uh, every time he did those, that uh, like there was a meaning and people understood him. And uh, he actually, he, uh, as a rookie, as a rookie, he was every bit as elite rookie as Jumbo Tsurura was. Right. He had a similar pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I just looked, you know, his real birthday or not never faked it, but the, he was born in 1951, December, right? Mm-hmm. 1951, meaning he will be 71 this year. Oh my gosh, you know, mm. right now he's 70. I mean, like that hit me. It's like he's like, a, you know, not young, but never old, you know. And then and he was great athlete, always running around with this running clothesline and things, and always has, you know, long hair. And uh, that hair is really Choshi, you know, the very first Japanese wrestler with long hair, you know. Mm. Yeah, styled long hair too. He he did have a. It was the, it was the look back then, late seventies, early eighties. Uh, yeah, but when he came look. back from, from from okay, we'll, we'll cover that. Um, he was born in Japan, and the people are probably you know like a English speaking world that curious about his Korean background. You know his his parents came from Korea, and, and he's the second generation uh, Korean descent. You know, but he was born in Japan, and he does not speak Korea. I mean, Korean language. He doesn't. And a little bit of words here and there. And uh, they ate Korean food at home. And the grandmother, you know, his grandma always cooked Korean food at home and all the things. And uh, but he pretty much grew up in Japan. He was born in Tokuyama Yamaguchi Prefecture. And Yama Riki Choshu's Choshu ring name, right? Choshu is an old you know old name for yamaguchi prefecture mm-hmm. did you know that yeah is it because it's kind of like that island uh, shape uh like Choshu, um, 
oh, that's the same issue. But uh, see, every single Japanese cities had different name in in like in the Edo period、mm. when everybody had the samurai hairdo. <laughs> right, like, like know, Tokyo was. It, Tokyo、Edo wasn't yeah Edo it was Edo Edo yeah right so、uh, when、uh, civilized in Meiji period you know you cut the samurai hairdo and the women stopped doing the Japanese you know hairdo and all this it was only 160 years ago when you think about it yeah it's See, not long ago at all not that long ago no that、uh, the Perry you know came from America and then and the ship the black ship came to Yokohama Bay and then. You know,、uh, asked Japan to open up the country, right? And、mm. then sometimes you have to learn real history, you know. And、uh, yeah, 155, 160 years ago, like eight, 1890s, we still had this samurai lifestyle in Japan. Then 20th century starts for the so the、uh, Western lifestyle is just only about last 130, 40 years. Did you? Yeah, it's like. That's hard to think of, but the, it's not all that long ago, huh?、Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, as an American,、uh, yeah, looking at American history, America doesn't have much history at all. So I think from that period, it kind of coincides with the the state's strange evolution over the years. Right, right. But they, but like, in, in the majority of people came from Europe, England,、mm-hmm. Nordic country, Germany. French, you know, and of course, you know, it's, it's, that's what made America. But、uh, yes, yeah, I just、uh, mean the length of time, like the length of time. There, there is this kind of、uh, parallel from Japan having to grow out of the Edo period lifestyle and kind of、uh, what was globalize, you could say. Yeah, globalize and re.、Uh, Um, recover yeah, the economy. I, I didn't、too. want to say civilized, you know. No, not, civilized no, too, just, but, but yeah, um, like a, I don't know.、Like、Open the country to the、yeah. other. Only other country that the, the, you know Japan was friends with was like a Holland for some reason. Right, right. Yeah, I think it was and, for trade、uh, trade reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of the things came from Holland, Dutch culture. And introduce a lot of different things, and we were exchanging things, you know. And back to Riki Choshu, Choshu was old name for Yamaguchi Prefecture now. And、uh, somebody, you know, <laughs> okay, I don't even know where to start. But he was born in Japan in Yamaguchi, and、uh, the grandparents came from Korea. And the reason he had two different names was that the going to school is Japanese name, but he had a his. Grandparents and parents never really switched the passport. You know、mm-hmm. that、uh, li- lived in Japan, but he was still Korean citizen, basically. You know, technically, and Riki Choshu was born in Japan, but、uh, he didn't really change that citizenship un- up un-、uh, until like recent years. And、uh, so that that's the co- Korean part that the people you know always kind of talk about. You know. Not being racist, but the very unique relationship between Japan and Korea, and in Japan and China. Now that the two two Koreas, North North Korea and South Korea, right? And also there was a history way back in 1920s and 1930s.、Uh, the whole Korean Peninsula at one point for 30-year period was Japanese colony. 
You know what I'm saying? Mm. And th- that's when Ricky Dozan came to Japan to be a sumo wrestler. So there's like a really rich, recent actual history to some of these people today. Okay. And Ricky Choshi, of course, grew up in Japan, born in Japan, grew up in Japan. And he was in judo in junior high and he started wrestling in high school. In high school, you know, not many Japanese high school have wrestling program. You know, most of the school have judo and kendo and all that. You know, but uh, he went Would to high school. Would you considered where... him a jock? Oh, of course. Oh, even to this day, yes. Just it's like, like a, a sports guy. That's his, his main uh, focus. His main passion in life is is training. Yeah, and that's sports. a complete college jock type, like your fraternity house. You know what I'm saying? Like a frat boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, definitely. Oh, most definitely. In, in 12th grade, in high school, back in 1969, he won his first, na- first national title, a 75-kilo uh, freestyle. 75 would be like 175 uh, pound. 75-kilo, uh, that the division, he won the first national title when he was in high school, uh, 1969. Then he was rec- recruited to Senshu University. Senshu University, it, it, they produce a lot of wrestlers like, you know, Hiroshi Hasereiro, Manabu Nakanishi, or Jun Akiyama, of course. Yeah, a lot of wrestlers came from that college. Anyhow, that uh, he was uh, recruited to Senshu University and his uh, sophomore year in 1971, he won the National College Championship in 90 key uh, Greco. So he did both freestyle and Greco. And better yet, his junior year in, in 1973, he won both freestyle and Greco in 100 kilo. 100 key is like a 225 pound class. That's like a real, I mean, real strong division, right? Um, yeah. Uh, 73 won both freestyle and Greco in 100 kilo division. And the year before that, he went to Munich Olympic in 1972. Yeah, just same Olympic as Jumbo. But what this is where it gets tricky. He represented Korea for the for that uh, Munich Olympic. What was the name he went? He was under for uh, uh, Kwak, Kwan, Kwan, Kwan. Kwan. I can't. Yeah, Yeah, I I couldn't pronounce it either. I'm gonna look Kwak, it up Kwan right now. Win. Hmm. I'm gonna look it up yeah. right now. Just the pronunciation. I couldn't pronounce it, but yeah, yeah. He, he was going Kwak under his Kwan Un, I think. His uh, yeah, his his real name. Uh, Korean pronunciation. There's the same kanji though that you can pronounce it in Japanese, like a kaku koyu, you know. Okay. Kwak but in Japan, Kwan he was Kwak Kwan Un. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah, it's pretty good. That's if pretty anybody, good. Uh, if anybody out there listening has a uh, Korean uh, advice for us, yeah, please. Sorry about, sorry let, about that. Let us know. Yeah. It's okay though. Yeah, but that Kwang-un. same kanji, Kwak Kwang Un. Okay, but but he didn't speak kanji, uh, the Korean language though, right? At all. So no, how I mean, how just, did he get on with the team? Bit, teeny bit that the grandma taught taught him, but he technically had Korean passport and he won the Japanese national twice, three times by then, then then uh, he couldn't represent Japan 
all, you know, as, as an Olympic team. And the wrestling association people worked a deal that the, this is national college wrestling champion that was Korean passport. And then the Korean team said, yeah, well, like, he will represent South Korea in the Olympic. And then he told, Ricky Choshu himself told me one time that he was bullied during the Olympic. Hmm. How did yeah, he get along he, with his team if he didn't speak the language? She spoke a little. Just enough? Uh, just enough to get bullied. <laughs> you know? I see. Oh, he got bullied yeah. by his teammates. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Ah, yeah. I see. Yeah, because over wow. there, there's a reverse racism, too, because mm-hmm. you are Korean, but you're pretending to be like Japanese. Right, right. Yeah, so it's like a reverse kind of racism then he had a lot of that in japan too you know in, in college team or the that the you know high school job type you know this, i'm not so proud of it but the, yeah but it's, it's a very korean uh, korea and japan thing right it's a regular part of everyday life in society that um when i was teaching there you know every when i taught uh, yeah but that doesn't make it right no no what i'm saying is just that the the um trying to explain to the listeners how it's it's uh it's very regular that there is uh not not just the bullying i'm talking about just uh racial no just the 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 korean born japanese right sometimes people use the zainichi word for it but it's um Uh, i don't know if that's uh, not 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 the korean born japanese japan born korean excuse me japan born korean excuse me right yeah and so that's a regular second generation right so i'm every country has their own uh, version of that but um yeah but that doesn't make it right no not at all not at all but it's there but it's there and also his grand ricky choshu's grandparents and parents decide to you know to to keep the you know korean passport but lived in japan mm-hmm. yeah so technically he was korean citizen with korean passport but oh, to make a long story short he was able to represent korea in, in olympic 1972 in munich but uh, so that's why you don't find his name in japanese olympic team in 1972 he represented korea and he went there as a korean team and then he ended up being bullied you know mm-hmm. and because it's like a, for Korean nationals, like a, he's like a Japanese sold out, you know, you know, Korean thing. And, and just, it's just reverse racism was there, but he experienced that all his life, you know. Yeah, and later quite a few uh, wrestlers from after Choshu to today are from the same situation. Uh, they're Korean descent, but they're second or third generation, uh, and they yeah, live born still in Japan. had the Jap- uh, still had the Korean passport. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. you you because if you are you know directly involved with this culture that these people or uh, if I were were to move to another country, you would keep the culture you know at home. Sure, you sure, know? yeah. Or furnitures, the the way mom cooks her, you know, meal, uh, even a little language at home. Yeah, yeah of course. So Choshu were able to speak a little bit of Korean, but little enough that the, you get bullied when you go to really go to Korea, you know? And uh, yeah, it's just reverse. Anyhow, that the, he did represent 
Munich, uh, only uh, the, the Korea, but when, when they went to Munich, uh, so he's a former Olympian. Yeah. And in December of 1973, while he was still in college, or just finishing finishing up, that uh, December of 1973, Antonio Inoki, Seiji Sakaguchi, New Japan Pro Wrestling had a huge press conference, signing, you know, that, announcing that uh, Mitsuo Yoshida, uh, you know his real, real name, Mitsuo Yoshida signed with New Japan Pro Wrestling to be a professional wrestler. It was like a year after Jumbo Tsuru's debut. Yeah, and he looked a little different. He didn't have his long hair yet, and he... No, no, just crew cut. <laughs> you know, yeah. just right out of co college, you know, uh, just wrestling team, you know. And he was never a wrestling fan. I mean, pro, pro wrestling fan growing up. You know, that kind of... Um, I, I, I didn't know that, but for some reason it makes sense when you... Yeah? Yeah, it, he wrestled that way where he... He didn't wrestle like uh, someone who loved pro wrestling. As a he kid. Wrestled, he wrestled like an athlete who just wanted to win all the time and be the best. That was the, the aura he yeah. presented. Yeah, and doesn't really waste time. Mm -hmm. No nonsense, also, no BS. And if you remember how, uh, the way he walks in the ring, of course, to your counterclockwise, it's wrestling, but... Uh, he is always looking at you know your opponent's feet, you know. Step right. here, step there, step here, step there, and I'm not gonna let you go. You know what I'm saying? And he, he even during the ring announcements, he never makes uh, direct eye contact. He's always uh, kind of fixated, like you said, on the opponent's feet. He's always uh, because he has... he's a wrestler. Yeah, the leg dive, leg dive. Sure. Yeah. 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 It never uh, kind of leaves his mind, it looks like. It looks like he's always looking for that takedown. No, of course. He's a wrestler. And also, he uh, is always in the middle of the ring. The other person is making a circle around him. You know that? He would always, uh, I would often see him get frustrated in the match and call his opponent back to the ring and point down at the mat in the center of the ring. Come here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that come was to a the big... mat. That, that's uh, that the feeling from Choshu. You always got that. The point too. You'd like to point his finger simply either at the opponent or at the map. It would get, it would get the point across. Yeah, however, he yeah. was feeling. Oh, it's like a, he's almost famous for like a grabbing house mic and say certain things. But it was never promo. It was more like a making statement. I mean, like a believable statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, that's how. Maybe like a Western English-speaking world, wrestling fans, you know, have to kind of understand that the, the Japanese wrestling don't really have this storyline promo that much. Now they do, maybe at New Japan, but uh, the, see, Riki Choshi always grabbed house mic way more so than Fujinami ever did, right? Mm -hmm. But it was like, a, come here and do this, or, you know, I'm going to get you, or, you know, um, don't come in, or something simple, but it was, like, really effective. Also, I, I feel like he's... Choshu is kind of hard to understand sometimes, even in Japanese. Like, the, the, <laughs> way, the, way, the way he talks is very unique. Tenru is the same way. Tenru is the same, the same way. way. Homa... Um, uh, who else? There's a couple wrestlers that, that have that gravelly, um, yeah, yeah, kind of mumbly voice where almost nothing is enunciated and it's just, you have to get a, a double take. Espe <laughs> For especially you, with yeah. 
I mean, it's, you, you think you understand it, but it's not a it's not a language issue. It's more of uh, an audio issue. Um, yeah, yeah. But he had this natural nonverbal communication hmm. ability, almost. Yes. I mean, you could looking at Ricky Choshu from the, the way up in the nosebleed, you still understand him. Mm-hmm. I mean, like naturally pantomiming kind of moving, you know, and uh, when he's angry, he looks angry. When he's like trying to do something, he's about, I mean, he looks like he's about to do something. And he had that, this natural, you know, move or something. But anyhow, that the, he started training under uh Antonio Inoki's New Japan Dojo, right out of college, okay? And he makes debut the six, uh, seven months later, 1974, August 8th, uh, that uh, his opponent was Mexican wrestler El Greco. His winning of uh, the finish was already Scorpion Deathlock. Debut wow. match. Interesting, huh? Where was that from? Where Did he take that from somewhere? Carl uh, Gotch. That's from Carl Gotch. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That the Carl Gotch gave, you know, uh, Inoki German suplex and octopus, mm-hmm. you know, hold that uh, he gave, uh, Carl Gotch gave Sakaguchi his atomic drop. That the, actually Carl Gotch came up and gave, you know, a lot of Japanese stars their signature moves that been overlooked but you know what i'm saying german mm-hmm. suplex how popular in japan backdrop it, suplex Car- from uh from luthes luthes yeah but the carl gotcha's german suplex is a thing that every single japanese wrestler tried one time or another mm-hmm. you know, fundamental beautiful yeah very fundamental and also the the show you a kind of earthly you are you know the perfect bridge to perfect suplex mm-hmm. to yeah it shows and, all of your strengths from not just your upper body, but your whole body. And you know, uh, the, the, the time you spent doing the bridge work. Yeah. On oh, the yeah. Uh, you Strong always, neck. if you see somebody do a perfect bridge at Cork and all, the whole crowd will, will gasp and cheer. <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it's great appreciation for it. It's, it's, um, there are some wrestlers who do train that hard and the, the bridges are beautiful. So, uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But yeah, and then there was a moderate version of like a Northern Light Suplex or the hmm. Dragon Suplex. Oh, yeah, Dragon Suplex that the Fall Nelson into German Suplex that the Fujinami had, you know, used, you know, when he was young. That was also given by Karl Gotch. But aside from the Scorpion Deathlock, I, yeah? I, I don't think I wouldn't describe Ricky Toshu as a very flashy, very. Um, uh, innovative wrestler in the ring. It was more about. Oh, of course, very simple. Winning, very simple. Si- very simple, but effective. Very simple. But I really, I learned so much from it because Ricky Choshu has Scorpion Deathlock and Lariat, right? Hmm. That's it, almost. I mean, well, he has a you know Saito suplex, you know Greco-Roman suplex, you know, but the, basically clothesline and. Scorpion Deathlock, right? Yeah, that's. I, I learned so much from it that you only need two or three moves to be the big, huge superstar. The more move you do, the less people remember. Really, I mean, you don't he... want to have 10, 15 different moves during the match. Basic wrestling, yes. What was different was that every other wrestler had 
some strategy, some approach to what they were doing. And Joshua would just react as he is, as he was. He he would yeah. react to what, and that's what made it feel different. Yeah, so it's not really, he was never that technically scientific wrestler. Yeah, he can be because he's, he's a, a college champion wrestler. You know, on the mat, yeah, he's strong, and he can do things with people with you, you know, UWF style, whatever they call, you know, you want to call it. But uh, yeah, but uh, he choose to have his own very convincing, simple style, huh? Very simple, very. Yeah, but it um... didn't become. He wouldn't become big, huge superstar for another ten years. Let's go back to 1974, August. He 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 debuted. Uh, white trunks, white tight, you know, boots. Not black trunks yet. He had the white trunks and the white boots. El Greco is the name of his opponent. Very first debut match, he used Scorpion Deathlock <clears throat> to win a debut match. Then he was sent to Germany, you know, quick excursion again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Ricky Joshu too had this trip to overseas all by himself and when he was sent to germany first uh the fall of 1974 and had, that wasn't the Otto Vance, um establishment but rather he worked for people like roland bach that uh, more of a outlaw german company mm -hmm. and uh, spent the entire fall and winter there and the, the beginning of 1975 he finally went to America, went to Tampa, Florida, right? Then he was told to go to Coral Gotches and then to train there, right? But there's a two sides in this story. That uh, one story says that that uh, after one day with Coral Gotch training, one story, okay? Uh, after one day, Ricky Choshu quit, you know, training with Coral, right? And the other story, uh, I have to defend Ricky Chosho on this one. Oh, I love Karagach, don't get me wrong. But uh, uh, I have to defend Ricky Chosho on this one. That uh, uh, Coral came to the apartment that the Ricky Chosho was staying, you know, knock, knock in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Then Ricky Chosho, you know, Ricky, uh, the Chosho didn't answer. And uh, so, so uh, Karagach left. And went home and never, you know, asked him to come again. And for Ricky Choshu's story, that the, the training at the Corals, it's all conditioning. That's all, he's all, you know, he already done that uh, during college days. It's nothing new to him, you know. Mm. It's all Coral teaches like a conditioning, 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 like you make you do the thousand squat and hundreds and hundreds push up and hundreds and hundreds of you know the, the sit ups and the rope climbing and all these you know conditioning, conditioning strengths, right? And running. It's like for him, for Ricky Choshu, he's done all that during college days. Nothing new, right? Well, he's like, an Olympian. Te yeah. So teach me how to wrestle professionally, is hmm. what he was saying. Yeah, right. it's like a, he did. He wanted to learn how to work. Right. Right. Yeah, Carl is not the kind of coach. He will just teach you how to like the mat wrestling. Yeah, it's a more of a dojo shoot style wrestling a little bit, but the mostly conditioning, conditioning, conditioning all day long. And Ricky said, "I ain't doing it." Right. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's a two sides in this story that the one, you know, that the one side say uh, that the Choshi quit, that the training, you know, he didn't like Carl's training, some truth to it. And for Ricky, Choshi's side of the story is like, Carl only train you, just want, want you to do just conditioning. That's not what he was there for. He wanted to learn how to work. Especially when he was never wrestling fan as a kid growing up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, professional wrestling was so new to him. And instead, that the hero Matsuda uh, uh, coached him a professional style, and he briefly worked uh, the tag team with Hiro Matsuda as Mitsu Yoshida in in Florida, the same period of time, big, uh, the spring of 1975. You mm-hmm. can uh, you can find the match results from like old you know newspaper clip or you know some people have all the florida results right that uh, you can find uh mitsu yoshida tag, tagging up with hiro matsuda that around that time and what was interesting was that the rookie bob Backlund came to florida and had match against uh, the mitsu yoshida yeah i mean bob Backlund later on wwf champion both being rookie and uh, interesting, you know, they, they crossed path. Then after Tampa, he went up, went up all the way up to Montreal, Canada, all by himself. That's when he grew his hair really long for the first time because he, um, he never cut it, you know, for over a year. And uh, that he, the first time he had like a real long hair, okay? In Montreal, uh, Montreal was a place he really learned what pro wrestling was like. What English speaking and French speaking, right? Mm-hmm. In, up in Montreal, he watched every match from first match to main event. Oh, he worked in the show too, but uh, he still didn't quite get what what you were there to accomplish. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Pro wrestling. What is this? You know, yeah, because in, in in the college wrestling, you want to beat this guy as soon as possible, as quick as possible, as uh, as effect, you know, like uh, most effective way, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, he quite didn't get the like idea that why you would have to make this match last like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, when you can beat this guy in two minutes. Because <laughs> he's coming from the the yeah, real yeah, athlete side. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's logic. He he wanted logic. He wanted things to make sense. He didn't want to suspend his belief. He was not a wrestling fan growing up, right? Pro mm-hmm. wrestling fan. But the this Montreal experience really, really educated him that uh, what the babyface meant and what heel meant what babyface do in the ring and but what heels do in the ring and what's the content of the match and what should happen at the end and then why when how you can make the audience come back for the next week's show mm-hmm. and something really clicked in his head now he understood wrestling not completely yet but uh you know he was there and also he was so young you know like just two or three years out of college right yeah, he told me one time in a real um, cold winter night in Montreal, like a forum uh, outside, he got an, in a long line to buy Kiss ticket. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kiss concert. Yeah. I got to go, right? 
and he was so cold outside, so he had a peppermint schnapp in his denim pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he got on the line and then and, and bought Kiss Ticket. Yeah, it's a, that 70s kid, huh? I guess so, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that I had to throw that in there because Ricky Choshu is like that. You know, he was an, a college athlete and wanted to become a professional wrestler. He had this, you know, traditional Japanese wrestling excursion thing. He was sent to Germany, you know, Germany, and he was sent down to Florida, had a Kurogachi experience, Hiro Matsuda experience. Now he's on his own and went up to Montreal where he didn't know anybody. Oh, he knew Rujo family, you know, because uh, they worked in you know New Japan a little bit. But in Montreal, not much English, not one bit of French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but he he worked the territory and really start understanding what pro wrestling is about. Interesting, when, huh? When he was in Montreal, who did he end up wrestling when he was there? Ah. Oh. Uh, I I don't know Rujo's or the Gills Poison who uh, who later on become Alexis Smirnoff or uh, I don't think he wrestled Vashans anybody like that. Mm. Maybe younger Dino Bravo there were there. Maybe he had he crossed paths with people like Edouard Carpentier in backstage. There's like a the group of French you know Canadian wrestlers that we have a hard time pronouncing their names. Right. I mean, Montreal was pretty big territory, mm-hmm. you know, re- recognizing their own. Yeah, Grand Prix, and they got, always had they got two or three different companies, you know, wrestlers walking out and making another company. And uh, there were always like a, at least two major companies in Montreal itself. And people like Don Leo Jonathan come in, you know, come in and work for a while and go. And it was under the Giants' very first home territory and after he came to America. And uh, Montreal was an interesting place. And he spent, you know, like six, seven months there in Ricky Chosha, I'm talking about. And, uh, yeah, then he was called back uh, to Japan, you know, in, in 76, I believe. Yeah. And but the, he thought he had to cut his hair, so he chopped up all the, the, the long hair he had in Canada. He is going back to Japan, so he cut all this. It's just like he he came back like a rookie looking, like a real short hair, you know. That the long hair, he, to be a Ricky Choshi, you you would think you need long hair, right? Right, that's that's the image that I get in my head. The yeah, but the seventy five, okay, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine, and going to eighty. Like next five years, he had this short hair, you know, like a punch perm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was kind of yeah. like a perm, little uh, little mini afro yeah, little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and uh, light blue trunks. Yeah, some or, or that, white. White, light blue, something, yeah. Yeah, not, but not always the had the tracks. white boots. Yeah, not yet, not yet, you know. And uh, wasn't even using clothesline. He wouldn't use clothesline until he was programmed against Stan Hansen. Actually, Ricky Choshu was the one who who was clothesline Larry added by Stan Hansen the most, most. Really? That's why he took the clothesline. Ah. You know, yeah, because Ricky Choshu wasn't, 
even in in the main event then you know sometimes like like in in, in okay 19th april of 1977 mitsuo yoshida finally became ricky choshu okay it, that uh, they changed the ring name you know and then he's staying and no more you know like uh, he came back from uh, overseas and becoming one you know one of the main event cluster not quite though because he didn't have the star look yet and also he didn't work like this fired up you know like a later ricky choshu yet he didn't have a clothesline yet he did have uh that uh, Saito suplex backdrop, and he, of course, he had uh, Scorpion Deathlock, but uh, he tagged with people like Osamu Kido the most time, you know, and uh, Ricky Choshu ring name didn't really click yet, you know, Choshu, Ricky, and you know when you have your rival Jumbo Truda with you know English name on it and uh, you know like a star thing. And he, yeah, Ricky Joshi himself bummed out. Ah, Joshi, Ricky, you think it's good? And he wasn't sure about that either. And uh, yeah, for the next five years, he was basically mid-card guy, you know, great athlete, good wrestler, and not much star aura yet. And uh, he was put in, you know, like Madison Square Garden series, you know, tournaments. He was in, in um, you know, occasional main event as a tag team partner of Inoki or Sakaguchi. And uh, in 1979, he won his first title with New Japan, that the NWA North American Tag Team Championship, you know, title with Sakaguchi. And he still didn't have uh, long hair yet. And uh, yeah, he was like, wow, like uh, almost like a designated, you know, seat was his fifth match, sixth match uh, of the evening, you know. And uh, Fujinami was already becoming a star then, though, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I myself didn't pay, I'm sorry, didn't pay much attention to Riki Choshi at the time, you know. And uh, yeah. Well, what's then funny he, about it is Choshu is coming from being number one wherever he went until he got to pro wrestling. And that story that we'll get to in a little bit, well, you know, when he's, you could, it's very believable that somebody like this would be fed up with not being in the number one spot who's just used to being number one. Because in, in, in athletic, you know, like a contest, you know, college wrestling, he always beat everybody. Mm. He was a locker room leader. He was a college jock, fraternity kind of guy. And, uh, yeah, it's just college jock, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and always hang out with boys. But in pro wrestling, yeah, uh, his role, like five, you know, first five years, as I remember, you know, Inoki in his, his prime time with his, you know, Inoki Bomayed, you know, theme music starts, right? The music and Inoki, Inoki chant, right? I mean, like main event of the evening, right? Fujinami, no, wasn't even there. That the, uh, Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Fujiwara was the two seconding guy that uh, guarding Antonio Inoki going into walking into the ring. You mm. you go watch, you know, 77, 78 videotapes, you know, that the Inoki in his prime 
prime time, the perfect hairdo, the kimono jacket with his music, and it's just people pushing him and trying to touch Inoki, right? And one side of Inoki, Fujiwara standing there, and the other side, Riki Choshi standing there, the guarding, you know, the, you know that the that the holding people from, you know, like uh, reaching out to Inoki, that the, he's like. The, the ring guy, you know, the perfect guy, but the two tough guys, if you realize, one side Fujiwara, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, the other side Ricky Choshu, and both wasn't main event star yet. And that uh, those were the, like a like a bodyguarding uh, Inoki in his prime. And it's really interesting that the both guys became, took that role and made it into his character, you know? T- two tough guys in two different paths. Are, they, you, are you following me? They yeah. seemed like they were uh, two different sides of the same Inoki coin. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because because we know what happened after Inoki went on and, and Fujiwara went on to have his career, and his career went a specific way, which was parallel with Inoki, the uh, more shoot fighting, less uh, amateur Greco-Roman freestyle well, but, but, the, but the Inoki but, was actually never shoot style. He was Antonio Inoki, really. Right, but but what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, I think that there's if you look at Fujiwara, you look at Choshu, uh, both of them are one part of Inoki's personality. Oh, definitely. Oh, them. definitely. Right. And Korogach, I mean, uh, Fujiwara went real extreme and took Korogach aspect of Antonio Inoki and went mm-hmm. all the way. Yeah. And, and Choshu went the Choshu. opposite. Yeah, more pro wrestling new japan strong style not necessary not necessary submissions or anything like that but more real fighter in you know, a fired up uh, intense you know have strong serious match type deal he'll slap not you in the face before the match starts uh, intense yeah 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 point his finger at you yeah and then nose to nose yeah it was yeah, intense, in, the intensity of a, a sports game. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was believable. So, uh, oh, of course, both believable, Fujiwara mm-hmm. and Choshu, but uh, the separate way. And what's interesting, in, in, you know, fast forward a little bit, 1984, that uh, Fujiwara became overnight star by attacking Riki Choshu before the match, remember? Riki Choshu attacking uh, uh, Fujiwara, yeah. Yeah, Fujiwara attacking mm-hmm. Riki Choshu oh, right before from, the ma- yeah, be match outside in, in well, near the entrance. Yeah, like a, yeah, in yeah. The crowd. Nobody really was paying attention to Fujiwara until that night, you know. And overnight, he became like a terrorist heel, you know. But there that's was so another much story blood. for another day. Very bloody on live television. And live television. Something like that wasn't as regular as you'd see today. This was. This didn't happen. And also, that was complete Antonio Inoki booking style that the day did not let many people in. TV didn't know about it. So they mm. couldn't shoot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was protected. Yeah, if TV camera was right there waiting, that's not believable anymore. So it's, Inoki never let too many people in. Not even boys sometimes. Mm. You know, interesting, huh? But that makes it look so real. Anyhow, that the Ricky Choshu stayed for uh, uh, for five years or so, you know, was just as talented, right? Just as good athlete, or he didn't. He almost looks like he didn't have drive to be star star. 
he probably was happy where he was. I don't know. But uh, he wasn't really the main event until your 1982 angle. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say angle, but it was angle in modern wrestling term. But he actually had the second trip overseas. Uh, he he spent seven months in Mexico in 1982, you know, with red knee tights like your, you know, Masasaito tights. But That's right. Red. Yeah, he, he yeah, would wear those to every now and then in the 70s, into the 80s, like an AWA. Yeah, well, so he said when he traveled overseas, he wanted to wear that, you know. Hmm. And he beat Kanek to become UWA World Heavyweight Champion in Mexico. He dropped Good. the title before, yeah, he dropped the title before he uh, he left Mexico, but uh, this time he came back with long hair. He needed that. I mean, like a, one little little aspect or a little X factor thing, I think, that the one more taste, one more little thing that he needed to be the total main event guy. And uh, upon his, his arrival with long hair, he turned on Fujinami, you know, that uh, why would, okay, in America, okay, uh, six man tag team situation, okay, who, who should be called, you know, by ring announcer first? In, in Japan, main event guy would be called the last, okay? Right. But in, in America, who would be called first? Would be more important person? Usually, yeah, that's tends to yeah. be the. Yeah, yeah, but in in Japan, like uh, that ring announcing that night, that the uh, triple, you know, six man tag team situation, that the one team was Inoki and Fujinami and Choshu, okay? Then ring announcer called Choshu first, then Fujinami, and, and, and finally Inoki, right? That's when he turned on Fujinami. Why should I be called first? Hmm. I'm the champion, and I'm, we're equal, and, you know, this. And then and, and he just this today's term, of course, is big angle turning turn turn on your tag team partner. Therefore, you're here. But it wasn't that simple. It really that he delivered this mic so believable that he was frustrated that uh, he is not below Fujinami. He felt it was equal, and he didn't want to be in this trio uh, six-man tag team situation. The match started. It, one team was Abdur the Butcher, and then and Special Delivery Jones, somebody like a, you know Bad News Allen or somebody. Okay, at the time, but the, it, this six-man tag team match against Abby's team only became the backdrop of this this, this angle. Okay. During the match, they started fighting, you know, Ricky Choshu and, and Fujinami. You know, and Inoki tried to break it. And uh, then the match continues. Then second in, in time that they start fighting, you know, against, you know, in the ring, they're going to try to break up. And so that the six-man tag team only became the backdrop of, you know, this, this whole angle thing. But uh, that's when people really noticed the importance of Ricky Choshu's like a statement. That's right. What he was saying is really right. That he didn't have to be in like in, in hierarchy like below Fujinami. He's he's equally talented. He's every single credential he has, maybe even above Fujinami. And it's just that he was never on spotlight, right? Like Fujinami has been. And uh, that's like 
people really went with Ricky Joshi's statement. Like, that's right. That's right. He, you know, that the opportunity uh, chance should be given to Ricky Joshi this time. And sure enough, the, the single match program starts. Ricky Joshi, long hair virgin with clothesline, Ricky Larry at this time. And people start remembering it. Right. Ricky Joshi was the one who got the clothesline most by the original Western Lariat, Stan Hansen. By then, Stan left New Japan. He was always, you know, he's, he was already with All Japan side, okay? And uh, Ricky Choshu became the only person who uses clothesline, or you, I should say Ricky Lariat, as a finish in New Japan ring. Nobody else was using clothesline at the time. Does that make sense? And he, he did it, it the Ricky Lariat was special kind of like how the rocks people's elbow was special it, it was just a lariat but he would always kind of wind his arm up like right before yeah he would, uh... yeah right and also step step in step back step back he he gives this perfect timing right mm -hmm. and he would kind of yeah. let the crowd know hey this is coming right 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 and doesn't even you know like uh like a talk to crowd like other baby face do well he wasn't but the, you know he wouldn't saying? even look at the crowd People have, you know, had to pay attention to him in the ring instead of instead of wrestler calling the crowd. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Opposite. He didn't he have to pander. He, yeah, he didn't have to beg the crowd to cheer for him ever. Uh-uh. That was him, and the people liked him that you know just that much better that way. Yeah. Then uh, Masa Saito flew back from AWA and joined him. And uh, sure enough, that uh, that summer, the following summer, I believe, that uh, Ricky Choshu beat Fujinami for WWF International Heavyweight Title. There was such thing then. Mm. You know, WWF, WWE, and New Japan still had the partnership, business partnership, and they, they recognized WWE International Heavyweight Title in New Japan ring. and. Fujinami held it, you know, but uh, Ricky Choshu beat Fujinami for the f pretty much first time. See, they had six single match up until then, and every single six matches, Fujinami won. When Ricky Choshu had short hair, that uh, that that's a history, and that the, now you're seeing different Ricky Choshu, and the statement he was making, not a mic promo but uh, the short interview in the backstage you know tokyo sports the nikan sports the weekly pro wrestling the gang magazine the weekly fight these i mean including myself there that that you i wasn't there that in 82 though but the, you know i'm talking about wrestling magazine reporters and photographers they have short little you know backstage press conference kind of thing and you give question to wrestler like it's a sports event of course you know what i'm sure, saying like a scrum like new japan still does it all japan still does it they have the, all yeah, the sponsors yeah, are uh on the wall on the the, the little yeah, screen with the logo the on it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's not like it was part of tv show but the sports page reporters and writers photographers are there they ask questions what mm -hmm. happened and how you feel and it's not scripted Mm -hmm. So it's done like sports, you know, of course, you know, it should. And uh, Ricky Choshu always gave real short comment, but he's, he was saying things that this is what he meant, you know. And, uh, yeah, 
uh, like everything he did was really believable because of it. And uh, yeah, it was like perfect single match, you know, Fujinami against Riki Choshu. And uh, the matches were good, always good. How many times they did that? Well, the next 30 years, they, they had single matches, you know, of course. But uh, this initial, you know, encounter of these two, you know, not Inoki, but they're like two sons, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And they're both different versions. I mean, Fujinami is oh, definitely, the, uh, yeah. He's like the, the golden boy. I mean, he's he's almost like at this point, uh, he looks like a mini Inoki, but yeah, younger, right, right. more like explosive. Not, right. Yeah. This and and he is more of a pro. He's he's more perfect for pro wrestling. He's more of a kind of. He does a lot of things that are spectacle, like the dragon rocket, like we talked about last time. Tope, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Ricky Choshu would never do a tope. He's not. A, he he wants to. He's to beat done you up it. And he's done it a couple of times. Sure, sure. But <laughs> you know what I mean, though. The, the, no, the, not the style a is, No, not no nope. pure sport of uh, wrestling into the pro wrestling world. Um, and, and, so and never, never, uh, never like deviating from that or never giving in to whatever. And also, the way he makes the first contact in the ring, I'm talking about lockup, you know, the colonel mm -hmm. tie up at the very beginning, you know, very beginning of the match, he does that so seriously. Mm -hmm. well, I want people to go, go watch Ricky Choshi's, you know, match you know, on an old videotape. It's the first lockup, it's so serious. You know, that's like, it's like really fighting, you know, that uh, just, just another lockup and another, another day at work. But he goes in there and then the bell rings, the match starts, then he really has this fired up look in the first contact and you lock up. It's just like, a, it's like, it just, that's his match. I'm hope I'm hoping that that's making making sense. Right. That's what that's the typical Ricky Choshu, which would you would understand that you would know that from watching him just on a regular basis, and what would make the lock matches, up, yeah, just the like lock a, up, but, so but putting pressure on each other, and yeah. But what was special is when he would have these matches with, say, Fujinami. He would uh, deviate from that template. He would he would. Go right. He's also the type when he would be really fired up. He'd go right after his opponent before the match started too. There's also sometimes, that. sometimes, sometimes. He was always about the, yeah. the first touch. There's always he was the instigator. He it was a lot of uh, in Japanese. There's that you say bachi bachi. How do you say that in English? Yeah. Like uh, I don't know, but <laughs> bachi Like uh, um, that kind bang, of bang. <laughs> yeah, like just like crashing and banging into each other. That kind of yeah. Um, Bachi Bachi style of uh, you know, athletics. He had certain something about that. You automatically suspend your disbelief. How's that? Because it's ironically so believable. Because yeah. he was in the Olympics, because he's a national champion, because we listen to how he talks, um, you, you go, wow, that, that's him. There's, he's not hiding anything. Uh-uh. So yeah, it was very, very interesting that way. And uh, yeah, Fujinami probably is a better pro wrestler of all, you know, smooth. Yeah. He looks like a movie star, especially around then. He, be, I mean, yeah, he, and, uh, yeah, obviously better looking than Ricky Joshi, right? right? And, and you know, for younger, for younger fans, I'm assuming like uh, they would watch Choshu and they, they don't relate to. 
a guy like Ricky Chosu, that's like their dad. They want somebody that's, you know, more <laughs> yeah, relatable. Ricky Chosu in his prime was so popular among male fans, though. Oh, because he was like the man's man for, for, man's what, man. for whatever that means today. I, I don't mean to say it in any other way. Just it's what it's what the feeling was. He was a, yeah, a, yeah, a really take a look at his faction. Ricky Choshu, right? Masa Saito, the Killer Khan, the Yoshiaki Yatsu, the Animal Hamaguchi, the Kunyaki Kobayashi. None of them's your, <laughs> you know, handsome guy from class. You if know? you were walking yeah. down the street and Isingun were just hanging out, you probably would just walk by him. <laughs> You, they, they're, they look like they're, they're not salary But I'd men. much rather wear Ishingun t-shirt. <laughs> they were kind of like, I, you know, it's funny, yeah. digress a little bit, but a lot of people, there's this assumption that uh, UWFI uh, influenced the NWO, but when I think about Ishingun and... Ishingun is more NWO, huh? Way yeah. more NWO. And yeah. It's more pro wrestling, the attitude, or like you could say, like Bullet Club or, you know, Suzuki yeah, Goon. Today's Bullet Club. Yes, yeah, Suzuki Goon. Oh, like very cool. There's also the cool heel, the birth of the cool heel. Yeah, I um, think so. I think so. Because, uh, and it was also, we've talked about it before, but when Choshu was in the spotlight, he, he and Fujinami, it was kind of rare to see. Uh, such a hot program between Japanese wrestlers that we were used to, you know. Right, because up until 1982, 1983, the main event was Antonio Inoki against American Superstar. Sure. Whether it's under, under the Giant or Hulk Hogan, Stan Hansen before he left. Uh, well, yeah, every single American superstar, they came, you know, the Dusty Rose, the Bob Backlund, the Dick Murdoch. The, yeah, it was always... American superstar against Inoki. It's a very simple formula, right? Mm -hmm. And that's right. Fujinami against Riki Choshu took over the main event spot that that that's like Japanese against Japanese, Japanese babyface against Japanese heel. That they didn't really label it as babyface and heel, but the, you have people choose, you know, who you like, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, it's traditional babyface and heels, but they were not promoted like produced like that. Oh, it was basically, of course, of course, Fujinami Babyface, of course, Ricky Choshu heel, but it wasn't like you're supposed to cheer for Babyface and boo your heels. It's like people had, you know, let, you know, allowed people's freedom a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The Austin Choshu uh, parallel is something I got to, it's, it's not exactly the same, but it is similar. It's it is that kind of it's you're not supposed to like Rick Choshu. You're not supposed to get behind that <laughs> attitude. But but he know, was a cool guy. It's cool, yeah. It's just it's yeah. uh, the the instinct that the way he kind of carried himself too. And it, I, by this time, was he doing much media outside of wrestling, or was he just doing wrestling by the early uh, wrestling? But he made appearance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, he started appearing in other uh, the non-wrestling magazines because he's like a talk of a town guy, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, also the way he dressed, you know, like a baseball, you know, under shirt jerseys or like a real like T-shirt that he was really tight. <laughs> well, right. like a big guy, right? He yeah. was a big and, guy, and he continued to get just his his yeah, chest and, was so and, wide. And, in early 80s, you had this denim 
was, you know, like a really hazukashi, what do you call it? Like, a, you don't <laughs> wear these belts, and you, I mean, like, yeah, like, like a, the big Texas belt buckles. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I've seen the, the, the cover of Shukam Pro Wrestle with the yeah, him the, the and Saito. Yeah, the belt buckle like you're from Texas. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like and, he's uh, a... Yeah. And back then in the 80s, you have your t-shirt in, in your denim. Oh, yeah. Not outside. Right? And he's huge. Yeah. So it really, it's noticeable. Maybe he's wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah, maybe yeah. not. With his long hair. And, and cowboy boots. Cowboy <laughs> boots for sure. <laughs> it's yeah, a funny cowboy look, boots. yeah. Yeah, but and also like a, the Sassoon Joe Dash jeans. Yeah. Right. He was in the advertisements. Yeah. Then big belt buckle, cowboy boots, <laughs> and long denim t shirt tucked in. That's so 80s. But uh, yeah, he was popular. Yeah. Really popular. And baseball cap, of course, outside the ring. He's a badass. He was the ultimate badass at the time. Yeah. 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 And also didn't hang out with establishment. That's what made him cool. Right. They, there was the way that was presented. Okay, you gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta go this way. And Choshu's, like you said when we were explaining the the Gotch story, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. Choshu is yeah, gonna do. Yeah, and, and even against God of Wrestling Carl Gotch, you know, if you're a young boy coming from New Japan, you know, dojo, and then you're in your excursion, and you're supposed to be training at the Carl Gotch's house, and uh, that's fine that he went there for a couple of days and said, fuck it, excuse my language, that he was like, in amateur days in college, you know, workout that he'd done it all, and it's like nothing new. Teach me how to work, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what you what you do at Korogachi's house. And uh, instead, Hiro Matsuda uh, taught him how to work. You know, but so, so, so there's a reality to this story. You know, it's not like he ran away from Korogachi's training, and Korogachi was doing what he had to do too. So uh, yeah, very interesting, right? And also uh, back to this early '80s New Japan thing, they were so serious about you know Ricky Choshu's faction that. Uh, Baby face is in heels, never stayed in the same hotel. Mm-hmm. New Japan, top and bottom jersey, you know, red and white, you know, you know, the, the tracksuit and young boys and young lions and Japanese baby face all stayed in one hot, in hotel. And Ricky Choshu and his faction always stayed with American hotel. I mean, heel hotel. Yeah. And they never traveled together. They had to order another big van for just Ricky Choshu's. Uh, faction to drive in because you don't want to walk out of the same hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then stop wearing New Japan top and bottom altogether. They had to order black and black and white top and bottom for Ricky Choshi's faction. It's much like today's, yeah, yeah, it's like root of today's Bullet Club, huh? Yeah. Like or something NWO. like that. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. cool heels. It's um, yeah. uh. Big mean dudes. Yeah, big mean dudes. Big mean and dudes. Never, they do what they want to do. Never was on New Japan bus again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody and, traveled. Yeah. And the, but are we? I think it was like eighty four. Are we skipping anything? Because it was no. around eighty four when he 
And those guys, they, they like you they said, they decided to resign from New Japan Pro Wrestling and formed a new company called Japan Pro Wrestling and signed the deal with All Japan Pro Wrestling and Giant Baba and also Channel 4. So the, the entire faction, 13 wrestlers, uh, like migrated into old Japan. It was like a big, you know, migration. The half the crew from New Japan left. All right, this is a great place to uh, wrap up our episode today that the, right, as popular as Ricky Shoshu and his faction was, he decided to leave old Japan at the end of 1984 and, and started a new company called Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, they were going to have their own show, but they instead they um, they formed a group, in, in, incorporated the actual company. The company signed with old Japan and to be part of old Japan show for, I don't know, next five years or so, they had a contract and also signed the deal with Channel 4. They they all went from New Japan to All Japan in January of 85. We should start from there next week. Because that's a whole different, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there too. That was a whole, it's a lot of the things yeah, that happened. Because, uh, yeah, as a little preview that the, uh, Ricky Choshu, his, his crew worked with All Japan 85 and 86. But he and his core group decided to go back to New Japan in spring of 87. Mm. Yeah, so that was another back and forth story. But uh, now, 35 years later, we know more about it. What went in, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to start next week when this is, I would say, Toshi would begin his peak period, his peak years. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And more of um, that, uh, more leadership in the group, mm -hmm. I think, and also that uh, somebody who makes the big difference. Yeah, he's a superstar. Yeah, yeah. But the, those two years with Old Japan is very important. You know, Ricky Choshu Yatsu against Jumbo and Tenru, single match program against Tenru, and it only happened once. But they had Jumbo Tsura against Ricky Choshu just once in 1985 at the Osaka Joe Castle Hall and had a 60-minute Broadway. And uh, they had all the dream matches with all Japan. Then Ricky Choshu, in March of 1987, decided to return to New Japan. But the television contract, you know, you know the, the stop him from going to uh, New Japan and there was like a court case uh, we'll cover that next time okay I'm excited to cover all of that because there's there's a lot more we got to cover the Maida situation and we got to cover into politics in 89 okay there's and the Japanese fan knew about the existence in the position of Booker. We don't call it Booker, but, uh, you know, when Inoki was in his prime, he was the lead starring role in that movie, and he was also a director and producer and promoter and writer, and everything was in one, in An Antonio Inoki, in his, his show, right? One-man show. But when Inoki left for the public office for the first time and being a politician, somebody had to run the locker room, huh? Mm -hmm. You would think Fujinami would be the one but instead, Inoki choose uh, Riki Choshu to be the booker. And there's no 
term for booker in Japanese wrestling. So they called it kantoku. Kantoku, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, a, like a baseball kantoku. Yeah, manager. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but the people still uh, thought it was locker room. I mean, somebody in charge of locker room. But that's we, a whole <laughs> different era. And there's other. I mean, we've got to talk about the G one too. I mean, that's Choshu's baby. Uh, oh, that was his creation. That was his creation. Yeah, G one climax. Right. Mm-hmm. He was an active wrestler and a booker, and also just like up and coming three musketeers. Uh, Muto and Chono and Hashimoto, how to, how, how, how to produce these guys. And you already had Vader, Bam Bam Bigger, Scott Norton, and all these this strong roster in New Japan. And Fujinami is still there, too. And uh, how Ricky Choshu handled the booking. And we'll go into that next time. Lots to get into next week. Okay, let's wrap it <laughs> up for today. So, okay, if we have questions or comments for you, Fumi, where can we find you online? On Twitter at Fumihikodayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihikodayo, or Fumisaito on Facebook. Please message me first. And I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R, on Twitter. Um, that's it. I'm excited for next week uh, for all this choshu. Do you think we think we're going to have two episodes or Maybe three episodes? Maybe we need part three, huh? We yeah. might, because there's a lot to unpack next week. We're just from 87 to 89. we got to talk about 89. all the way to like 2022. Yeah. Current choshu is its own. It took on a life of its own as well. The current right, right. modern And day. also he retired once in 1998 and came back 2000 and had a 19 more career. <laughs> oh, he, right? had a, he had an exploding barbed wire death match as well. Against Onita. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. Uh, a lifetime ago. We might, ah. do th- we might have to do three of these. Okay. So I guess. All right. Until next time for possibly part two, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. <laughs>